Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Trevin Wax urging believers to rediscover the adventure of the Christian faith. What I wanted to show is that actually orthodoxy is. It is thrilling. The fact that we we believe these things that um, are really at the heart of the adventure of the Christian faith. Uh, orthodoxy brings together things that you would think would have to be separate and brings them together in ways that are a source of creative and explosive power. Trevin Wax, next. Dr. Trevin Wax believes every generation faces the temptation to wander from orthodoxy, to be drawn to the novelty that can accompany false teaching and drift with cultural currents. As such, he also believes every generation needs to be awakened again to the thrill of orthodoxy, which is the title of his new book. Trevin is the author of many books and a vice president at the North American Mission Board. Trevin, tell us who or what motivated you to write The Thrill of Orthodoxy. Well, I would say the what was the uh, a burden that I think a lot of people have lost a sense of confidence in, not if not the truth of Christianity, the goodness of Christianity. Is the gospel good? Is Christianity's moral vision uh, um, good and beautiful? Um, there's just so many different cultural challenges that are facing the church right now. And I, I had the, the um, you know, I, as I was thinking about the, some of the people I was talking to, and um, I noticed there was a sense of unsettledness, what I think is a lack of confidence, a loss of confidence in the goodness of the gospel message. So, um, so that was the what, as far as the who has inspired it. Um, well, I could just speak of the influences on this book. I I, I point to three primarily. I mm. would say it's C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton, and Dorothy Sayers. Mm. Um, all three of those writers have inspired me in some ways to to find the beauty uh, of Christianity, to to look at some of the foundational teachings we have and to see them in a new light. And so I think I would say if I had to 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 point to three people who inspired the work, those would be the three I would pick. Okay, the thrill of orthodoxy. Obviously, you're asked this all the time. It sounds sort of like an oxymoron to put thrill and orthodoxy together. Uh, tell us why you combine those two. I think a lot of people have the idea of orthodoxy as a dry and dense list of doctrines. You know, and you think of something thrilling, you think of something innovative mm -hmm. or something that's on the edge or something like that. And right. what I wanted to show is that actually orthodoxy is. It is thrilling. The fact that we, we believe these things that um, are really at the heart of the adventure of the Christian faith. Uh, orthodoxy brings together things that you would think would have to be separate and brings them together in ways that are a source of creative and explosive power. You know, the, the inclusive vision of Jesus in welcoming all kinds of sinners to the table of repentance and the exclusive claim of Jesus saying he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Uh, Jesus being... 100% God, uh, God taking on human flesh, but then also God in human flesh, uh, learning to read and write as a child, um, uh, you know, at the at the breast of his mother, Mary, uh, going to the bathroom, like we go to the bathroom like you. You just think mm -hmm. of these, these uh, 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 the, the, this beautiful paradoxical truth at the heart of Christianity, and you recognize that it's replicated in all sorts of Christian teachings that uh, heresies generally 
can't take in the full glory of that. And so they wind up divorcing one truth from others and isolating one truth from others. And so I want people to recognize that the strangeness of Christianity is part of what makes it compelling, part of what makes it beautiful and thrilling. And of course, you were just talking about uh, the gospel in a broad sense, but also there are many, as you write, marvelous paradoxes at the heart of Christian theology, which is part of discovering that thrill of orthodoxy. Yes, and I think the word discovery there is really important. Because a lot of people today, I think, they they look at spirituality and religion, and they think, you know, what religion is going to help me be my authentic self? Mm -hmm. You know, the best version of myself that I can be. And I think it's easy for people to to think of religion as, as an aid in the life that I want to make for myself. Um, whereas that, that's that's really a religion of self-invention, uh, a, a cobbling together of your own preferred version of the faith, whereas orthodoxy is not something you invent, it's something you discover, it's something you stumble upon. It's something that's there, whether you want it to be there or not. Uh, and instead of thinking of religion as something that's going to help you define your authentic self, religion, when discovered in its authentic version, it's something that you have to reckon with, that you adapt yourself to, rather than you adapting that religion to yourself. And so that's really where the thrill of, a, of discovery comes from. It's that you discover something that comes from outside of yourself, not something that you created on your own. And, and I guess at this point, I should ask you to define orthodoxy for those that, uh, here we are using that term, but w- what is it? You know, this was one of the questions that we knew we would have to answer early on in the book. And uh, <laughs> when you write a book with the thrill of orthodoxy, you have to define your terms pretty quickly. Um, I, I'm using for this for the purposes of this book. I'm using the word orthodoxy uh, to refer to um, what what Chuck Colson would simply call the faith, mm. or what C.S. Lewis called mere Christianity, mm-hmm. uh, or what Chesterton called orthodoxy, or um, what what um, Thomas Oden would call classic Christianity mm. or consensual Christianity. This is the Trinitarian core of the Christian faith as summed up and described in the creeds that virtually every wing of the Christian church agrees are accurate summaries of what the Bible itself teaches. So we're going back to that bedrock of the faith, the Trinitarian core that is at the heart of our faith that all wings of the Christian church actually agree upon and saying, regardless of the other differences, and there are many, and some of them very substantive, uh, this is what all Christians, all the the, the other confessions of faith and the statements of faith that churches have and whatnot generally build upon and recognize these three core statements of faith as at, actually at the very heart of what Christians teach. And it's what Christians have been unified on for th- more than a thousand years now. So if a church claims to be Christian, they're go- any church, they will agree to those three core statements of doctrine. That's right. And they may not do so explicitly. There mm-hmm. are some that implicitly do or indirectly do. And there are, you know, there are different relationships that different churches have to statements of faith and creeds and whatnot. Of course, we believe that only the Bible is actually inspired, authoritative, without error. Um, and yet, virtually all Christians everywhere have recognized that these, these particular creeds, the, Ap- the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed, are accurate summaries of what the Bible itself teaches. And so they go back to those creeds to say, these are good summary statements. Um, one of the things you'll find in the book is that I actually, I lay out line by line the words of these creeds. And uh, over on, the, it's a chart, and over on the side are all the scripture references for each line to show just how grounded and rooted these creedal statements are in scriptures themselves. 
Um, but I'm I'm going back to that as the 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 foundational teaching of Christianity to say th- this is where our, when when we when we trace whatever branch of the tree we're on back down to the trunk and then down to the roots. This is the root system, uh, the Trinitarian core, who God is and what he has done. Well, the book is The Thrill of Orthodoxy, Rediscovering the Adventure of Christian Faith. My guest is Dr. Trevin Wax, and he is Vice President of Research and Resource Development at the North American Mission Board. And Well, Trevor, you, you've talked about this a little bit, you've alluded to it, but what is this thrill of orthodoxy? Uh, you, you liken it to an adventure. When we think of an adventure, you maybe think of hiking a mountain or something to that effect, and uh, uh, in, in you liken it to a map, I believe. Yeah, I have a lot of analogies in the book. At one point, I talk about it as a castle with vaulted ceilings and lots of grounds to explore. And um, I, I really, I look at it as something that um, is to be discovered, something that you continue to plumb the depths of. And the reason that there's adventure there is, again, because it's not something that you invented or tailored to yourself. Um, I, I I think a lot of us grow comfortable, and I think it's very easy in our world, especially for us to grow comfort comfortable with something I would call basically an, an air-conditioned version of the Christian faith, where oh. you basically tailor you, you tailor the temperature of your home to your own comfort, as opposed to having to live outside or having to take a journey outside where you're going to have to deal with the weather. Now, nobody talks about weather in sense of my weather and your weather. And uh, I mean, yeah, you may have preferred versions of the weather, but uh, you really don't have a choice as to what weather you're going to encounter. You just have to you just have to encounter it. It, it. No one says my weather or your weather. They say it's the weather. And there's a sense in which orthodoxy is like that when it comes to the truth of the Christian faith. There's not my truth and your truth. There's simply the truth. And it must be reckoned with. And I want to beckon people outside of the comfortably tailored, adapted environments that we tend to put around religion in the 21st century out into the wild world of wonders in which we're going to have to deal with the weather as it is so that people come across Christianity as it's actually been delivered to us with all of the adventure that comes with that and recognize that that's where the thrill is, that you're encountering something that you did not create, that you did not make, but if you let it, it will remake you. It will recreate you. And as you're saying, the the mere Christianity of, of the creeds and the confessions, but it does take us to, to the Bible itself, obviously. Absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, the the scriptures are the source. The scriptures are the fountain for us to to truly be and remain orthodox. And I'm one who, over against uh, other wings of the church, uh, am also going to insist on the primacy, the supremacy of of scripture. That it is scripture alone that is uh, uh, is is the 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 authority for the church. It's not that the, it's not that there are not other sources of authority, but at the end of the day, when it comes down to it, scripture has to be the judge. It has to be the the norm by which we judge everything else, and uh, including those creeds. Which uh, the reason why we can have confidence in the truthfulness of those creeds is because for you know for uh, more than fifteen hundred years now, Christians have said these creeds are an accurate guide to reading the scriptures. They're not only summary statements of what the scriptures are, but they're a good rule of faith for you to be able to see guardrails so that when you go back to the scriptures, if you wind up with an interpretation that would take you outside of the guardrails of those creeds, you can pretty much immediately bet that your interpretation is wrong because the church has recognized this is not only what the scriptures teach in these creeds, but these creeds are actually good rules of of thumb for reading the scriptures rightly. 
And so you can keep yourself on the orthodox path by way of recognizing the helpfulness of those summary statements that do come about. And certainly uh, heresy, uh, heretical teachings can uh, and sometimes are confusing, can be confused with orthodox belief. What are keys, and, and if you can talk a little bit about the urgency of distinguishing orthodoxy from heresy? Well, I wanted, I'd want to introduce three categories there. There's, there's, there's truth, there's orthodoxy, and then, of course, there's heresy, which is uh, such a distortion or abandonment of, of orthodoxy as to, to compromise it completely. Um, but in the middle, in between those two things, I would say are theological errors, and uh, the reality is, um, most all of us, we're all going to be in error at some point or another, because none, none of us have exhaustive knowledge of God and the scriptures and his ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've got to be careful. We've got to be in communion and conversation with other Christians so that we don't allow those errors to lead us to a place. Eventually, errors can become cracks that multiply in the foundation that eventually can lead you to um, to to heresy. But uh, um, heresies are, they often market themselves as innovative, as new, as progressive, as being on the vanguard, as more expansive or inclusive than orthodoxy. But when you really get a good look at them, you realize they're almost always more narrow hmm. than orthodoxy. Oh. Heresies are always choosing one truth at the expense of other truths. So for example, take the Docetist heresy that really couldn't take the idea that God was truly human in the person of Jesus Christ. He, he, maybe he appeared as human. He seemed to be human. But, but we don't want to sully God by, by having him be as human as we are. And so, you know, it was, a, it was a, uh, a distortion that led to this heretical teaching that God really isn't 100% human in the same way that he's 100% God. Uh, take the opposite approach, the opposite heresy we would call Arianism, or this idea that God was, uh, um, you know, in order to safeguard the, the 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 supremacy of God the Father and the godness of God the Father, there was a, a demotion of God the Son. Well, yeah, you could say he's divine in some sense, or you could say that he's, you know, the greatest of all created beings. And yet, when it comes to that divide, that distinction between creator and creature, we put Jesus on the created side. Uh, that he's not fully 100% God in the same way that God the Father would be or whatnot. Again, it's a narrowing. Whereas orthodoxy says, no, we're going to bring both of those truths together. God being, Jesus being 100% God, 100% man. Not 50% God and 50% man. Not, you know, more God more than more man, but that he is both of those things held, those two truths held up together in their fiery fullness. That's what orthodoxy teaches. And over and over and over again, you see orthodoxy holding together things that heresy wants to tear apart. What I want to say is even if heresy is really good at marketing and looking more expansive and broader and bigger, it's generally always smaller, shrunken, more narrow than what you find with orthodoxy. What is the value? And I suppose certain uh, Christian apologists obviously get into this, but of learning uh, some of the heresies that are out there, whether they're religious or otherwise, uh, the, the challenge, Orthodox Christianity, to be able to spot them, or is it better to become familiar with and lay all of our weight on Orthodox Christianity and, and letting that knowledge, with, obviously with God's grace, uh, allowing us to discern heresy? Well, I definitely think we want the bulk of our teaching to be focused on orthodoxy. Uh, You want to focus on what's real, not what's false. You want to focus on what's true. 
Um, and yet there is benefit in studying the heresies in part because they get recycled so often. Mm. I mean, they just keep yeah. showing up in different forms, mm-hmm. right? So you've got, uh, you know, I mean, we, we, we're we still dealing with Gnostic type heresies even today that would devalue the body, the embodied nature of not only humanity, but of Jesus. So, um, so yeah, I, I think it's it's good to know what the heresies are because they they help us look out for them. It's kind of like being inoculated against them uh, when they show up in different forms. But there's another reason. There's actually a spiritual benefit from studying the heresies, and that's that you can actually grow in your appreciation for the truth as you've looked at falsehood. Mm. Um, there there's something to be said about. Um, uh, you, you know, once you actually recognize some of these heresies, we just talked about a couple of the ones related to Christ. Well, Christmas time suddenly gets sweeter when you recognize the miracle of the incarnation. What J.I. Packer said is the babyhood of God. Hmm. I mean, there's there's a there's a thrill and a wonder at the glorious truth of Christianity. Uh, once you've seen it and it's sort of shrunken and 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 uh, the, these heretical uh, beliefs that 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 show up, uh, there's a sense in which, for example, if you're you recognize the the dismissiveness and the denigration of the Old Testament that you find in an old heretic like Marcion, well, once you recognize you see that heresy for what it is, it makes you appreciate the Old Testament more than you might have before. So. You know, I don't. I don't want to 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 sugarcoat things. Heresies are always ravage the church. They they leave the church many times. They they leave at least different eras of the church weaker, not stronger. And yet, I do want to say that there is a sense in which the heresies can serve the church by helping us to have a greater and a stronger and growing appreciation for orthodoxy itself. Well, the book is The Thrill of Orthodoxy, Rediscovering the Adventure of Christian Faith. My guest is Dr. Trevin Wax, and of course, uh, heresy is, is one of these, but w- what else can lead us to drift from orthodoxy, from orthodox Christianity? Well, I think there's a number of ways that we can drift, and I think different personalities may may drift in different ways. Um, uh, one way is just by losing our, our, our sense of awe and wonder at the beauty of the gospel. It's just easy to, you know, our heart to get familiar with holy things. Mm-hmm. And for us, for, for the Christian life to become dry and routine, even a drudgery, uh, where we might be more inclined to to look for something innovative or something that's going to give us an electrifying jolt of energy, we might look outside of orthodoxy for something to 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 make us feel alive again. Hmm. You know, um, that's one way we could drift. Mm-hmm. In our day and age, I think the, the the drift toward whatever seems immediately practical. You know, we live in a world where. Um, the question isn't so much what's true. The question is what works. And I think that's one way that we can also begin to, to drift is we can focus so much on just our day-to-day life of practice that we we lose any sort of interest in really coming to know God more. What it means for us to re- like, what is it we truly believe about God and how we come to know him and this, this, this person we encounter uh, through the scriptures I think some people drift because they get unsettled with certain Christian teachings. Now, there's a lot of Christian teaching that rubs against the world these days, teaching about Jesus being the only way to God, for example, the the nature of eternal judgment, uh, what Christianity teaches about morality and sexuality, things like that. Mm-hmm. So there are there's a, a way in which we could drift by just becoming perpetually unsettled with Christian teaching. Um, and then probably the most surprising way we could drift is by focusing on what Christianity, it, it, its impact in the world more than the actual message that gives rise to that impact. So, for example, 
It's all great for Christians to get involved in all sorts of causes, maybe political cause or social action causes or making the world a better place in this way or that, the church being very involved in its community. To all of those things, we would say yes and amen. This is one of the ways that the gospel works itself out in all sorts of implications. Mm -hmm. And yet I would just want to say it is always possible that the cross would be moved from the center and a cause put there in its place, even a good cause. And so we should always be aware of ways in which we could drift by making the cause and not a cross and not the cross central to our proclamation and our teaching. These are just some ways in which we, we we might drift away from the truth and might be more vulnerable to heresy than we realize we are. You raise something really interesting as we talk about the thrill of orthodoxy, orthodoxy being uh, right belief and so on that's been agreed upon uh, as distilled in these creeds and confessions through the centuries. You you talk about the danger of doctrine becoming and end in itself, or even an idol, perhaps. How, how yes, can that you know, it, we're, we, we are uh, the, the yeah. kind of people that we can take good things and make them ultimate, even good doctrines and make them ultimate. And, and my point there is to say, uh, it is possible to win a game of Bible trivia and yet not look a lot like Jesus. Uh, to think that as long as we get our theological points all squared away, as long as we're able to, to check off all the right doctrines, that we believe all the right things, that we, we've got our, you know, our I's dotted and our T's crossed, we're good. But I think we should be reminded that we are justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ, not by in how well we can articulate the doctrine of justification. We are justified by the saving work of God in the, of the triune God. God, the Trinity, he's the one who saves us. Not we're not saved by our expert articulation of all the intricacies of Trinitarian dogma. Uh, it is possible for us to see doctrinal explanation and understanding as an end to itself, rather than as a means to a greater end, which is knowing God. Uh, we we want to know Him. The reason we study doctrine is not so we can win a game of Bible trivia. It's not so we can win an argument with a with a neighbor. It's not so we can win that debate at Thanksgiving or Christmas time with a family friend on, you know, this particular doctrine or that particular doctrine. the 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 real reason that we study doctrine to begin with, the reason we study theology, is because we want to come to better know the God that these doctrines describe. Uh, without that being the end the knowledge and glory of God himself, uh, we'll turn theology into a game. And, and I don't think that anything trivializes or cheapens theology more than making it a game for our own puffing ourselves up, you know, for our own uh, benefit rather than the benefit of knowing the God that these doctrines are there to describe. And probably this is obvious at this point from everything you've said, Trevin, but uh, you, you make a point later in the book about the adventure of orthodoxy requiring exertion of energy. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Well, you know, the cultural currents are going to, to, to bring us downstream. You know, um, I believe it was G.K. Chesterton who said, any old dead thing can float downstream. It's it's the sign of life if something's going upstream. Mm. And, and so when I talk about the orthodoxy requiring the exertion of energy, I'm, I'm specifically placing orthodoxy in the cultural currents of our day. And I'm just reminding readers that um, the cultural currents are going to take you. You're going to drift unless you are actively exerting energy and opposing drift, you will drift. So orthodoxy requires life. It requires exertion, but, but not of the exhausting kind 
but of the of the life-giving kind of the of the of the signs of life that you're kicking against the string that you're going you're you're moving up here it's like it's like the the good kind of tired after you've been on the soccer field and you you've taken some shots at the goal you know that knowing that it doesn't all depend on you it's the spirit working in you it's the uh Jesus Christ who has already obeyed for you in your place it's the it's God the Father cheering you on because he wants you to become more like his son you know that this is the the beauty and the exertion and the energy that comes for us seeking to be more like the Jesus that has saved us. That's really where a lot of the thrill and the adventure and the development of, of orthodoxy, uh, the, the development of, of the Christian, uh, of our of our own character, where it comes from. It's in this, this orthodoxy that calls us to something higher and then supplies the gift of helping us be able to move up that mountain ourselves with the power of the Spirit. And another interesting aspect about this, and our time is going very quickly, but about the thrill of orthodoxy is you, you say that uh, it, it connects us. It, it's kind of obvious when you think about it, but it connects us to the global church. That's right. You know, there's a lot of different ways of expressing ourselves in worship, and you see this in different um, you know places. There, I, I often hear people going on a mission trip, and they're they're stunned to go to a different place with a different culture, with different sensibilities, that where so many things are different than the the world that they've grown up in, and then they wind up there, and then they, yet they find this commonality in worshiping the same Jesus, confessing the same truths about Jesus Christ as Lord. It really is stunning when you think about it. And this is one of the beautiful, beautiful things about orthodoxy is that it's what connects us to the global church. Um, we may have idiosyncrasies in all kinds of ways, doctrinally or in different ways, different, uh, there may be different cultural expressions of worship that you're going to run into when you go to different places. And yet that common core of conviction is there. And you 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 wind up in worship with other believers and you recognize we love the same Jesus. We confess the same name. We confess the same things about this Jesus. Um, that's that's something that reminds you that orthodoxy is bigger than any one culture, bigger than any one place, one church, one background. And uh, so that that global church connection and that historic church connection, that's how you recognize these roots run really deep. And we are connected to believers on all parts of the world who believe the same things about Jesus. Well, in terms of the subtitle of your book, Trevin, Rediscovering the Adventure of Christian Faith, uh, the title, of course, The Thrill of Orthodoxy, what what is at stake here? I mean, both in terms of our individual Christian lives and in terms of the church? Well, I think it's very easy for us in our individual Christian lives to to, to lose sight of the adventure of Christianity. You know, we may be clocking in and out of an unfulfilling job. We may be having some parenting troubles. We may be just trying to make ends meet, and, mm -hmm. you know, trying to keep up a daily Bible reading program or just going in and out of church and whatnot. There's a lot that doesn't seem very adventurous. And yet what I want people to recognize is that when you really understand orthodoxy and you understand the eternal stakes and you understand what the Bible teaches about us being on a spiritual battlefield and needing to suit up with the armor of God, even those small little acts of obedience. You know, those times when we're just, you know, praying a few minutes of prayer before going to work in the morning yeah. or where we're opening God's word and hoping he will speak to us and whatnot. Even these acts of obedience, even throughout our daily life, when we're we're putting to death the self in a myriad of ways that might be there, they may seem so small and mundane and ritualistic. And yet when you really understand the beauty of orthodoxy, you recognize those small acts of obedience are invested with vast spiritual significance. And so my goal is not to, to make readers think that life is going to be just one great roller coaster ride of adventure all the time. It's going to feel that way. I want people's eyes to be open to the adventure and the small things of life.
when connected to the greater story that God is telling through his word and in his world. And that's really what uh, I hope people will take away from the book is that they will they'll connect the beauties of orthodoxy that they confess with the conduct that they live in their in their personal life every day. Are you hoping that this uh, God may, if he's pleased to do so, to use this book to uh, revive aspects of the church, parts of the church or all of the church? Oh, I certainly hope so. I feel like every generation needs leaders and books who will reawaken us to the glory of Christian truth and help increase our confidence in it. And so my my hope is that those who read it will be reawakened in that way and that it will it will bear fruit, I pray, for years to come in the lives of people that that read it and are challenged by it and in some cases maybe even changed by it. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Dr. Trevin Wax, Vice President of the North American Mission Board and author of the new book, The Thrill of Orthodoxy. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Blair Lynn on how the gospel heals the pain of fatherlessness. And what does it look like now to have a relationship with my dads, you know, with Esther? You know, so learning I have three fathers and, it, and, and you know, what has really stabilized me in all of this has been my heavenly father. You know, it's been the unchanging, faithful, constant heavenly father in my life that has helped me to maintain my identity and even just my sanity, right, in this unchanging, ever-changing world. That's tomorrow at the same time right here on His People. Thanks for listening.